Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 27, the book of Matthew, chapters 7 and 8. We're going to conclude Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount today. We, you know, we've spent 17 lessons studying it because of its incomparable value and also because we're, today we're going to open the door into Matthew chapter 8. But first of all, let's take a look back on the all-important and not just a little bit scary topic from last week about what Yeshua meant by what He said in chapter 7 verses 22 and 23. Let me remind you of that. There He said, On that day many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in Your name? Didn't we expel demons in Your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in Your name? And then I will tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from Me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, the phrase of our focus is workers of lawlessness. Now, the bottom line is that after a thorough study of this term last week, the conclusion was that the term lawlessness can only indicate one thing, Torah-lessness, or perhaps Law of Moses-lessness. It is the Greek word anomia being translated that most literally means without law. We even find Paul using this same term many years after Yeshua's time on earth to describe this anti-Christ message. Working backwards from Paul, we have to ask ourselves a very basic question. Is the Antichrist called the man of lawlessness because he thumbs his nose at societal, civil, and criminal laws? And if so, to which set of human laws is he rebelling? International law? American law? European Union law? Sharia law? My question is somewhat rhetorical and that the answer is obvious. It can be none of these man-made law codes. The Antichrist is called such because he is by nature against, he is anti-God. And the only laws that God validates are the ones he has laid down for mankind. The biblical laws of Moses. And the Antichrist wants none of that. So it is that in Jesus' statement in verse 23, that workers of lawlessness is a term describing all those who deny and or disobey God's commandments, the Torah, the law. Now remember, there was no such thing as a New Testament in Yeshua's day. Now such a thing would not even exist for another two centuries or more after the death and resurrection of Christ. So neither Christ nor Paul could in any way be referring to the supposed New Testament laws that replace the Old Testament laws. The reference to lawlessness can only be to the Old Testament laws, since that was the only Holy Scripture in existence at that time. And especially since Yeshua's entire sermon is based on his teaching and authoritative interpretation of the Torah in light of the recent arrival of the kingdom of God on earth. Therefore, when taken in proper context, workers of lawlessness include non believers, fake believers, and self deceived believers. Now, it's my opinion that a goodly portion of the church is and has been for centuries self-deceived because of the adoption of doctrines that specifically denies the relevance of the Law of Moses for Christ followers and in fact legislates 
against following it. Yet there is a, a gray area in between a worker of lawlessness and a person who is, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, relegated to being the least in the kingdom of heaven, for not obeying the law, and even for teaching against it. Let me remind you of that verse, Matthew 5, 19. So whoever disobeys the least of these mitzvot, these least of these commandments, and teaches others to do so, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That is to say that in 723, the workers of lawlessness are those who are denied entry into the kingdom of heaven, but in 519, whoever disobeys the law and teaches others to do so will be those who are given entry into the kingdom based upon their trust in Messiah Yeshua, but they will be placed forever on the absolute lowest rung of whatever societal structure exists within the kingdom of heaven. Now, where that fine but hazy line exists between those two designations, I don't know. However, in both cases, the issue is a chosen and determined disobedience to God's Torah. So the wise thing for a believer to do in order to avoid either of these eternal consequences is to quit listening to a blinded church that says the law is dead and gone and that Christ has replaced the law of Moses with a law of Jesus, something that doesn't biblically exist. And therefore, once we get our salvation, oh, we can sign of retire, because subservience to God or, or unquestioned obedience to any divinely given rule, well, that's legalism. So we have to avoid it as a bad thing. See, this doctrine is an agenda-driven lie, and it will lead us to a very harsh outcome that Christ Himself warns us against. I plead with you, if you value your eternity, then out of self-preservation, I suggest you consider fleeing such a congregation, even if it means being ostracized from your social circle. I mean, the one thing I can assure you is that you will lose some of the relationships you've had with friends and acquaintances in that congregation, so you have to count the cost. Yet which means more to you as a believer, obeying God and His Word and reaping those eternal rewards, or disobeying God and His Word and suffering the consequences? Let's read Matthew chapter 7 starting at verse 24. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 24. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, then we are on page 1232, 1232, 1232. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 24. <clears throat> so everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on bedrock. The rain fell, the rivers flooded, the winds blew and beat against that house, but it didn't collapse, because its foundation was on rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a stupid man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the rivers flooded, the winds blew, and it beat against that house, and it collapsed and its collapse was horrendous. And when Yeshua had finished saying these things, the crowds, they were amazed at the way He taught. For He was not instructing them like their Torah teachers, but as one who had authority Himself. Yeshua says that every man who hears His words and then does them does them 
is like a wise person who builds the foundation of his house on rock. In a different setting, Luke, the Gospel writer Luke, has Yeshua saying the same thing, only slightly differently. Luke in 11.28 says, But He said, Far more blessed are those who hear the Word of God and obey it. See, what's being expressed is the Hebrew concept of Shema. Shema. Shema means to hear and obey, or to hear and do. The concept is rather simple. In all ages, it is fallen man's tendency to want to be emotionally lifted up by hearing fine words of truth. But then when it comes time to put those words into action, passivity or ambivalence sets in. Jesus is telling His audience that while it is to their merit that they indeed came to hear Him, and many listened intently, and, and being there, and hearing and agreeing with Him was well, that was a good thing, but it's insufficient. Do we not see the same thing happening in both synagogue and church in modern times? Perhaps we ourselves are guilty of it. We feel so very good about ourselves that we set aside an entire hour or so each week to go to a worship service and sit quietly and listen to a sermon. But once we leave our seats, and get back to the real world, do we remember what was said? Or more importantly, does that convert to actions and deeds? You know, not too long before he passed away, in a TV interview, Billy Graham confessed that after decades of follow-up, his organization had done on millions that had left their seats and come forward at his amazing crusades, only a little over 1% continued on in any recognizable way with the commitment to Christ that they had so enthusiastically made there. The 99% were heard and they were moved by it, but they did not do. And because they didn't do, their rush of conviction to make a positive change in their lives, well, that quickly faded away. Yeshua will, at a later time, actually address this issue in a famous parable about sowing seeds in various kinds of soil. God gave the basis for this ordinance and principle of Shema, and then the outcome for ignoring it in Deuteronomy. 28. In Deuteronomy 28.15 we read, But if you refuse to pay attention to what Adonai your God says, and you do not observe and obey all of His commandments and regulations which I am giving you today, then all of the following curses will be yours in abundance. For the next few verses, Jesus gives us an illustration of how valuable it is to pay attention to what he's just taught and to live it out. So he draws a simple analogy that is self evident to, to everyone present uh, the, the man who builds his house on rock versus the man who builds his house on the sand. Now, clearly, not one in his audience would ever build his house on sand any more than we would. So the point he's making is easily understood. Now, for us, the thing to understand is, he is speaking mostly about the foundation of the house, which is an analogy for our spiritual foundation. That is, every house necessarily starts with a foundation, and any experienced builder will tell you that the foundation and the soil under it, that's the key to it all. Begin with a faulty foundation or unstable soil, and everything above it's going to be shaky and short lived. Begin with firm soil and a solid, correctly constructed foundation, and everything above it, well, it's going to be safe, secure, and long lived. The foundation he is speaking about is the Torah, 
the Law of Moses, or more modern thinking, the Bible. All of it. Not just the New Testament. If the foundation is built on rock, then it means our spiritual foundation is built upon proper doctrine. If the foundation is built on sand, then it's built on poor and incorrect doctrine. Now, notice what happens next. It has to do with when calamity strikes. See, Christ's point is about the inevitable tough times that are going to come into every person's life, believer or non believer, if we live long enough. See, sand or rock, whether, when the weather's good, indicating good times, then everything seems safe and secure. The foundation stays in place and so the house seems to be properly built. But when the weather turns foul, indicating bad times, that's when the foundation is put to the test. If it is a good foundation, then the house will survive the storm. But if it has a bad foundation, the house will not. To do the will of the Father in heaven is a prudent thing for us to do. And it's evidence of the good fruit that Yeshua spoke about earlier in his sermon. Friends, modern Christianity has put a, a permanent happy face on our faith walk, or more appropriately, faith stroll. Although in reality, too often ours is a very lazy faith. We believe that we should trust in Christ and then our reward will be nothing but fair weather and smooth sailing ahead. But then the inevitable and the unexpected happens and because of the poor and shaky doctrine we've been taught, we blame God for our troubles because we feel that He has failed in His promise to protect us from bad things happening in our lives. Many will walk away from God disillusioned, feeling jilted. These are those who built their house on sand. Most did so unknowingly. Or perhaps a better word to say is they did it ignorantly. So to ignore Jesus' words and to believe that God's laws and commands, which Christ has been urging us to uphold, are no longer relevant to a Christian, well, that's to build one's house on sand. I can say it no more plainly than that, for that is precisely what Christ has been teaching. Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount's now come to a close. He has spoken for a long time. He's addressed many subjects, and he summed it all up in the last few verses. Now the Gospel writer Matthew makes a comment. He says, that the crowd Jesus had talked to was amazed by what they had heard. It was not only the godly principles that he taught, some long forgotten, but rather it was the authority by which he spoke. There was no equivocating. There was no quoting or borrowing from one of the renowned or known teachers or speakers of his day to validate what he taught. Matthew says he spoke far above the Torah teachers. Now it's important to understand who Christ was being compared to. Where our complete Jewish Bible says Torah teachers, the Greek is grammateus. It more literally translates to scribes. In Yeshua's day, scribes were the primary teachers in the synagogues. Thus, most scribes, perhaps all, were Pharisees. And while they no doubt taught God's Word, it was taught within the context of Jewish tradition. Yeshua taught within the context of the Biblical Torah, not within tradition. And while not all tradition is to be held suspect, tradition cannot be compared to God's immutable Word. When we hear God's Word, told in truth, it is transformative. Well, let's move on to Matthew chapter 8. Open your Bibles back up to Matthew chapter 8, and it will, will still be on page 1232, 1232, if you have a complete Jewish 
Bible. So let's go there now. After Yeshua had come down from the hill, large crowds followed him. And then a man afflicted with Sarat came, kneeled down in front of him, and said, Sir, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Yeshua reached out his hand and touched him. And he said, I am willing, be cleansed. At once he was cleansed from his Sarat. Then Yeshua said to him, Now see that you tell no one, but as a testimony to the people, go, let the Kohen, the priest, examine you, and then offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded. And as Yeshua entered Kfar Nachum, that's Capernaum, or we say more in English, Capernaum, a Roman army officer came up and pleaded for help. Sir, my orderly is lying at home paralyzed. He's suffering terribly. Yeshua said, I will go and heal him. But the officer answered, Sir, I'm unfit to have you come into my home. Rather, if you will only give the command, my orderly will recover, for I too am a man under authority. I have soldiers under me. And if I say to this one, Go, he goes. To another, Come, he comes. To my slave, Do this, he does it. On hearing this, Yeshua was amazed. And he said to the people that were following him, Yes, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such trust. Moreover, I tell you that many will come from the east and from the west to take their places at the feast in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But those born for the kingdom will be thrown outside into the dark, where people will wail and grind their teeth. And then Yeshua said to the officer, Go, let it be for you as you have trusted. And his orderly was healed at that very moment. Yeshua went to Kepha's home, that's Peter, and there he saw Kepha's mother-in-law, sick in bed with a fever, and he touched her hand. The fever left her, and she got up and began helping him. And when evening came, many people held in the power of demons were brought to him, and he expelled the spirits with a word. He healed all who were ill. This was done to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Yeshiao, that's Isaiah. He himself took our weaknesses and bore our diseases. And when Yeshua saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. A Torah teacher approached him and said to him, Rabbi, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Yeshua said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds flying above have nests, but the Son of Man has no home of his own. Another of the Talmudim, the disciples, said to him, Sir, first let me go and bury my father. But Yeshua replied, Follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. He boarded the boat, and his Talmudim disciples followed. And then without warning, a furious storm arose on the lake, so that waves were sweeping over the boat. But Yeshua was sleeping. So they came and they roused him and said, Sir, help, we're about to die. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? So little trust you have. Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and there was a dead calm. The men were astounded. And they asked, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? When Yeshua arrived at the other side of the lake in the Gadarenes' territory, there came out of the burial caves two men, controlled by demons, so violent, no one dared travel on that road. And they screamed, What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Now, some distance from them was a large herd of pigs they were feeding. And the demons begged him, If you're going to drive us out, send us into that herd of pigs. All right, go, he told them. So they came out and went into the pigs, whereupon the entire herd rushed down the hillside into the lake and drowned. The swine herds fled, went off to the town, and told the whole story, including what had happened to that demonized to the demonized men. At this, the whole town came out to meet Yeshua, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their district.
Now, as usual, we need to just ignore the, chap the chapter marking and understand that the first verse of what we call chapter 8 connects with the final verse of chapter 7. So immediately following the conclusion of his speech, Yeshua and his disciples go down from the hills above the Galilee and they journey just a few miles to where he was living at that time, Capernaum. And along the way, as, as one might expect, large number of peoples who heard him speak followed him. Now, what we read about him doing 2,000 years ago, they witnessed in person. He miraculously healed three people. Now, it could well have been more who were healed, it probably was, but Matthew liked to record things in threes. Now, I want to remind you that no doubt the people who followed him down that mountain came expecting miracle healings. See, after all, to this point, Jesus was still seen by the Jews as a Sadiq, a holy man, because healing is what a holy man did. Yeshua had not yet revealed that he was the Messiah, nor had he plainly disclosed that he was divine. During his walk back to his residence, he encountered a person with a skin disease. Now, nearly all Bible translations will say leper, but the complete Jewish Bible has it right when it says Sarat. I don't have to describe to you what a leper is. It is a dreadful, disfiguring disease that does terrible things to the person who receives no medical treatment for it. Sarat is a special kind of skin disease that includes a number of skin maladies. The unique feature about it is its source. It is God-imposed upon a person as a means of discipline and punishment. Now, we need to notice how Matthew structured his narrative. We have Yeshua going up a mountain, then he comes back down a mountain, and then we have him dealing with a person stricken with a skin disease. We find the same pattern with Moses, whom Matthew is quite intent on comparing to Christ. Numbers chapter 12 tells the story of Moses' sister Miriam, who spoke out against her brother, complaining that if Moses could prophesy, then so should she. God struck her with Sarat for her rebellion and her apostasy. Moses prayed to God to deliver her from her skin disease, and God said he would, but only after she was separated from her people for seven days. So now we find Christ, God incarnate, heal a person with a skin disease. But there's more to this story. Hours earlier, Christ had told people that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, one needs to ask, seek, and knock. So Christ didn't notice the sick person and then go to him. Rather, the sick person sought out Christ, knelt before him, meaning he sort of blocked his path, made himself noticeable, and then he asked to be healed. Yeshua said he would heal him. Now, we are meant to notice the terminology. The word healed is not actually used. Instead, the afflicted man asked Yeshua to make him clean. This is because ritual cleanness is the central issue for a person who has been divinely stricken with Sarat. That is, generally speaking, the various skin ailments that one could receive as a punishment for, for whatever the reason, for offending God, they were not fatal. Instead, they made the person ritually unclean, which meant they had to be isolated away from all others so that they wouldn't pass their uncleanness to somebody else by touching them. Now, such a thing was not only devastating from a, a social status standpoint, but it could be economically devastating as well 
especially if a family man was stricken because he could almost immediately throw the family, the entire family, into poverty. Now, I, I find it ironic that even in the 21st century in the most advanced societies that getting a disease that requires isolation or isolation to keep from getting the disease reveals the tremendous economic impact that isolation and separation can have on people. The COVID-19 pandemic of 2020 has caused millions upon millions of people to be thrown out of work or to lose their businesses, mostly because of the government imposed isolation. So when we read in the Bible about the plight of people isolated due to their ritual impurities, perhaps now we have a better idea of just what that meant for them, both in social and economic terms. Now please pay attention to what Christ does. He precisely follows the law of Moses when he deals with this diseased man. Why would we expect anything else? Yeshua has just come from teaching for hours about the need for following the Torah law and specifically and unmistakably saying that in no way did he abolish it or even modify it. Now believe me, those many Jews that were looking on, as well as that man who was stricken, they knew exactly what the procedure was during the period of impurity and then the procedure for emerging from it. So had Yeshua deviated from it at all, it would have been immediately detected. Thus the terms clean and cleansed are correctly used several times. Now the same story is told in Mark 1 beginning at verse 40 if you'd like to look at it and it is nearly word for word as in Matthew's narrative. Now some of the skin diseases these Jews contracted were long term, some were lifelong. Because they required isolation for as long as the infirmity lasted, there was little more fear and dread it than contracting Sarat. I say this because one of the objections to the reliability of this story is that first we are told that great crowds followed Yeshua down the mountain and then this diseased man who's unclean approaches him. And after healing the man, Yeshua says not to tell anybody about it. See, it seems incredulous that a huge crowd witnesses this, but now the man is supposed to keep what's already public secret. In reality, this man would have been isolated along with the others that had his disease, and they would not have been out wandering the streets. Jesus had to have passed along an area where the isolated unclean lived. Now while admittedly I'm speculating, it's not imaginable that when this man with Sarat suddenly appeared and approached Yeshua, that the crowd did not quickly back away in fear. Now how far back? I'm not certain, but you can bet their social distancing was a lot more than six feet. Thus when we read that Christ cleansed him and then told him not to say anything, the crowd probably would not only have not overheard that conversation, but perhaps didn't even know the man was healed. At least all of them. Typically the stricken wore sackcloth as a sign of mourning and as an outward warning so that the other townspeople should steer clear. Now some Bible scholars also question this story as not authentic because they say a proper Jew would never touch another person with Sarat as it was against the law of Moses. Well, that's just not true. There's no Torah law against touching an unclean person. However, there was a danger in doing so. It would have brought with it the contracting of that person's ritual impurity. So, 
in reality, people didn't do it. Now, I don't know of other holy men, other Sodic, might have done such a thing as touching an unclean person. But it's recorded that Jesus did. And what is so interesting is that Christ did what only God can do. He cleansed. Now, what should have happened is that that unclean man passed his uncleanness to Christ. Because a clean person cannot pass along their cleanness to an unclean person. It's a one-way street. And yet, that is exactly what Yeshua did. His touch passed his own ritual purity along to the impure man, making him clean. I want to repeat, this was not a healing per se. From the Jewish and from the biblical viewpoint, this was a cleansing. Healing and cleansing are two different things. Next, Yeshua tells the man to go to the priest and, he, and, and to offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded. Now, this is precisely what the law of Moses says a person who is potentially cleansed of their sarat is to do. He is to go to a priest to be inspected. And if the priest pronounces the person as cleansed, he is released from his isolation. And then usually an altar sacrifice is to follow. If ever there was continuing proof that Yeshua had not abolished the law of Moses, it's here. <laughs> because he specifically instructs the man to follow the law as found in Leviticus 13 and 14. But why is this man not supposed to say anything to anyone about being cleansed? There's been a few theories put forth about this, but none of them hold any water. The one with the most consensus is that Jesus didn't want to divulge who he was just yet. However, a holy man healing a person afflicted with Sarat and then the cleansed person telling others about it would have in no way unmasked Jesus as the Messiah. Nonetheless, in the hindsight of Christian history, the many miraculous things that Yeshua did definitively add up to the conclusion he was the Messiah that Israel had hoped for, but not the one they expected. In verse 5, Yeshua finally arrives home in Capernaum. There he is confronted with a worried Roman soldier, a centurion. Now, on its face, this is, this is kind of a peculiar story. Because here we have a Roman army officer, no doubt a Gentile, approaching a Jew, hat in hand, asking for his help. Now, it's interesting that we find a few stories in the New Testament involving centurions. And it can be generally said that they are upright men of honor. They have respect among the Jewish community. It seems that this Roman soldier has noticed the authentically miraculous healings of Yeshua and so trusts him. Now, he doesn't seem to confess any belief in the God of Israel, nor does he mention anything resembling some kind of a religious faith in Christ. However, clearly the centurion is both desperate and sold on Jesus' power to heal, regardless of how he manages to do it. So, the Roman explains that his orderly is paralyzed and he's suffering. Now, more likely this is not an orderly, but rather a house slave. Yeshua offers to go to the Roman's home and to heal his servant. We, we don't know whether this house slave was a Jew or a Gentile. Most Bible versions say that the centurion begins his address to Yeshua by calling him Lord. The complete Jewish Bible says, Sir. The Greek word being translated is kurios, and it's the equivalent of the Hebrew Adon or Adonai. It's a word of respect. It can be translated as Sir, Mr, Master, and yes, Lord, but little l, Lord. However, over the centuries, because the word can be translated to Lord, 
then it's assumed that this Roman meant it in a religious way. Because it is so common for Christians to simply refer to Jesus as the Lord. Now this is not what this Roman army officer was implying. Saying Lord was neither an indication that he had converted to the Hebrew religion, nor that he was declaring a religious allegiance to Yeshua. He was simply being respectful and courteous, especially because he understood that Yeshua was a miracle healer, and his best hope for saving the life of his servant rested in Yeshua. The soldier declines. Yeshua was offered to go to the officer's home in order to heal this young man. The officer was, of course, aware that it was Jewish tradition. The Gentiles were automatically considered unclean, and therefore, so were their homes. The belief was that a Jew entering the house of a Gentile would be rendered ritually impure and thus have to go through the hassle of a period of time of isolation and purification, then an immersion. So out of abundance, an abundance of politeness, rather than ask Yeshua to go against his culture and religious tradition, this soldier says it's not necessary for him to actually be present with the house slave to heal him. All that has to be done is for Yeshua to order it, and it will occur. And he thinks this is so, because as a soldier, he is a man under the authority of one over him. And so whatever he's ordered to do is dutifully carried out. And further, since he has a hundred men under him, he's confident that if he issues an order, it'll be carried out whether he's present there or not. For all the wrong reasons, <laughs> the centuria, centurion was actually on the right track. Well, Yeshua was astonished. He says, He's not known anyone in Israel with as much trust as this Gentile, a soldier who actually represents oppression to most Jews. Bible translations will, will more often than not say faith instead of trust. Regardless, let's not get carried away. This was not a religious trust or faith that the centurion holds in Jesus. However, Yeshua's response about the lesser trust present among the Israelites is meant in a religious context. The centurion, you see, the centurion holds a kind of deep, confident, unequivocal conviction that this Jewish holy man can heal his very ill house slave. And Yeshua sees it as an excellent model for the kind of deep, confident, unequivocal trust that his followers ought to have in the God of Israel and in his Son. What we have found so far is that even as concerns his twelve disciples, whatever trust they have in their Master amounts to seeing is believing. So the kind of trust that is based on an invisible promise and the uttering of a word instead of a visible proof of a sign is what Yeshua wants to see from his followers. The sad reality is that Israel, those who were elected by God to be the natural inheritors of his kingdom, have not lived up to their calling. Ironically, this Gentile Roman soldier, an enemy, better expresses what a healthy faith looks like better than Israel does. Now verse 11 says something that on the surface kind of feels out of place. Some Bible scholars use it as proof that all that Yeshua has been teaching has been concerning the end times and not the present. Now, actually, while this statement is indeed speaking of a future time, likely it is also Christ expanding on the matter of Israel and their place in the kingdom of heaven. He says that many will come from the east and from the west, presumably traveling to the land of Israel. 
in order to take their place at a banquet, a banquet in the kingdom of heaven. And strangely, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will also be present. Now first, while it's not across the board, generally speaking, in the Bible when the compound term East and West is used, it applies to the exiles and the dispersed of Israel. Second, when North and South are used together, in general, it applies to Gentiles. Again, this is not universal in the Bible, but it does seem to be a pattern. Now considering the context of Yeshua's statement, then I think He is speaking about the return of the ten Israelite tribes, the so-called ten lost tribes, that were dispersed to the east and to the west by Assyria in the 8th century BC. See, this is a prophesied event most famously recorded by Ezekiel chapters 36, 37, and 38. Now, assuming that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are there in in the flesh, so to speak, then this must be occurring, it can only be occurring, after the general resurrection that is to come. But it also moderates Yeshua's negative comment about this Roman soldier having more faith than anyone in Israel, to indicate that despite a general unfaithfulness in Israel, the descendants of the Israelite exiles will be welcomed into the Kingdom of Heaven. And yet, he says in verse 12 that those born for the Kingdom will not be allowed in, but rather they will be rejected, rejected to live in the darkness that is the condition that all who are excluded will experience. So who are these born for the Kingdom, but they're excluded? Now I'll say first, that in no way should we read in the word all, that is, all who were born for the Kingdom. Rather it is that among those born for the Kingdom, some, it could even be the majority, I don't know, will be excluded. The Greek word being translated as born for the kingdom is huios, huios, and it more literally means sons of the kingdom. Again, the subject's context seems to be Israel. So these sons are apparently apparently those of Israel who are indeed born God's people, yet most will not be allowed into the kingdom. Why? Judging from Christ's statement in 723, it's because these are natural-born Israelites that refuse to sincerely trust Yeshua as God's Son, Lord, and Savior. The idea is, not all Israelites will automatically be granted citizenship in God's kingdom. This would have been a startling pronouncement because the Jews of of that day believed that being born as Jews guaranteed them a place in the eternal kingdom. It was and remains not so. Clearly Christ taught the Apostle Peter this reality about Israel as well. So open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2nd Peter chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 17. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 1522, 15, Turn there now. 2nd Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 1. But among the people there were also false prophets, just as there will be false teachers among you. Under false pretenses they will introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, and thus bring on themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their debaucheries, and because of them the true way will be maligned. In their greed they will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their punishment decreed long ago is not idle. 
their destruction is not asleep, for God did not spare the angels who sinned. On the contrary, He put them in gloomy dungeons lower than Sheol to be held for judgment. He did not spare the ancient world. On the contrary, He preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, and then He brought the flood upon the world of ungodly people. And He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, reducing them to ashes and ruin as a warning to those in the future who live ungodly lives. But He rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the debauchery of those unprincipled people. For the wicked deeds which that righteous man saw and heard as he lived among them tormented his righteous heart day after day. So the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, how to hold the wicked until the day of judgment while continuing to punish them, especially those who follow their old natures and lust for filth and who despise authority. Presumptuous and self-willed, these false teachers, they don't tremble at insulting angelic beings. Whereas angels, though stronger and more powerful, do not bring before the Lord an insulting charge against them. But these people, acting without thinking, like animals, without reason, born to be captured and destroyed, insult things about which they have no knowledge. When they are destroyed, their destruction will be total. They will be paid back harm as wages for the harm they are doing. Their idea of pleasure is carousing in broad daylight. They are spots and defects, revealing in their deceptions as they share meals with you. For they have eyes always on the lookout for a woman who will commit adultery, eyes that never stop sinning. They have a heart that has exercised itself in greed so that they seduce unstable people. Oh, what a cursed brood! These people have left the straight way, wandered off to follow the way of Bilam ben Beor, who loved the wages of doing harm, but he was rebuked for his sin. A dumb beast of burden spoke out with a human voice and restrained the prophet's insanity. Waterless springs they are, mists driven by a gust of wind, for they have been reserved for the blackest darkness. All whom Peter said would be cast into darkness is specifically about certain members of Israel. Thus, I have little doubt that Matthew 8 verses 10 through 12 are also speaking about certain members of Israel. This episode concerning the centurion concludes with Yeshua confirming that because of this officer's trust that Yeshua can do what He says He can do, Yeshua has already done it. The house servant was already healed before the centurion went home. Indeed, the soldier was correct. Merely Yeshua's word could heal. We'll continue with Matthew chapter 8 next time.